0: Making the impossible possible. Master cinematographer Hoyte van Hoytema on his stunning, intense work on the summer's biggest movie, Dunkirk. This is Pop Culture Confidential. And I'm Christina Yerling Biro. So great to be back for a new season of Pop Culture Confidential that's shaping up to be very special for me with guests I've wanted to speak to for a very long time. So thank you so much for joining us again. And this is a thrilling way for me to start. In my career, I've found it most interesting and inspiring to talk to the true passionate artists, the masters of their craft dedicated to the absolute last detail. With Heute von Hoytema, you will see how his artistry lies in his passion for filmmaking, his willingness to do the impossible, and his incredible eye for detail and beauty in filmmaking. Like so many of you, I was taken by this summer's arguably most talked about and critically acclaimed film, Dunkirk. It's director Chris Nolan's stunning World War II epic a $150 million intense and lean drama about a few days in May of 1940. A different war story about bravery, and really about survival. 400,000 British and Allied troops were trapped by Germany on the beaches of Dunkirk, the waters too shallow for warships to approach the beaches. A massive rescue ensued, including some 700 civilian ships came to assist. The movie depicts these events from three different angles. Massive scenes on the beach with thousands of extras, from the air with visually stunning dogfights, and from the sea with harrowing scenes of sinking ships. Actors in the film include Finn Whitehead, Harry Styles, whom Nolan reportedly was unaware was a member of One Direction when he cast him, Mark Rylance as captain of one of the civilian ships, Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hardy as a fighter pilot. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. The
1: ship's about to leave. They need to send more ships. Every hour the enemy pushes closer. They've activated the civilian boats. Civilians? We need destroyers. destroy Where are we going? Dunkirk! I'm not going back. we go, they will die. You're weekend sailors, not the bloody Navy should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a
0: job to do. Turn it around! We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We, we shall never surrender.
1: We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender.
0: Where's the bloody Air Force? Goethe van Hoitema has emerged as one of the great cinematographers working in Hollywood today. Originally from the Netherlands he studied cinematography in Poland and through a mutual contact started working in Sweden. Collaboration with Swedish directors Mikael Marsemin on films like Upti and Call Girl and Thomas Alfredsson on Let the Right One In and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy won him critical acclaim and international attention. In Hollywood, he's done some of the film world's most innovative visual work with directors like, for example, David O. Russell on The Fighter, Spike Jones on Her, the Bond film Spectre, and two collaborations with Chris Nolan, with whom he seems to have found somewhat of a technical and passionate kindred spirit. With Interstellar they did incredibly innovative work using large-format film and now with Dunkirk they shot entirely on large format, 70% on IMAX, and the outcome is a true emotional experience for the viewer. In our talk we go deep, deep into how technically demanding the shoot was. How what looked impossible on script, new technical and emotional challenges that needed a solution, became possible through the genius inventions of Hoytema and his team. But also about Hoytema's other collaborations with directors such as Spike Jones and David O. Russell. A real virtuoso, Hoytema has used almost every type of camera, most kind of lenses, shot in all aspect ratios and all stocks. And even when he's filming in large format, the most spectacularly difficult scenes in Dunkirk, for example, he captures an intense intimacy, a nerve felt in every one of his films. Hoyte van Hoytema, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Christina, and thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. You're talking to me from Los Angeles, and I just want to say congratulations on your great movie. How have these last few weeks been for you all with the success?
1: Um uh, I don't notice so much of uh, of of the success. I'm uh, I'm busy with prepping a new movie right now. So I you know I couldn't attend the premiere which is becoming a theme uh, <laughs> in my life for the last uh, bunch of movies. Uh every time when there's the premiere and all the festivities around the film I'm uh, You're I'm off working at the next out. one. Yeah. And um
0: I have to ask you since you brought it up what is the next one?
1: Uh, well, I'm I'm preparing a film called Ad Astra. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a film with James Gray. It's a science fiction, uh, or James would like to call it a science fact. It's very dark, sort of. You could call it like a Hearts of Darkness in mm-hmm. space. Uh, Brad Pitt is playing the lead, and um, yeah, we start shooting in two weeks.
0: Okay, well, cool. So I'm sure you have a lot to do. Well, anyway, I can tell you that the reception for Dunkirk has been amazing, and that um, we really liked it over here as well. So, so um, you know that, but hopefully, someone else has told you as well.
1: <laughs> no, I have gotten some uh, some some uh, reviews forward and I'm very much aware. I, but I. I think that Chris was very happy about the uh, numbers of people that turned out to see it because it was not an obvious blockbuster when when we made it. It was actually, you know, you could say it was kind of a a more risky project, World War II, and uh, with a very unique uh, story structure. So nobody of us had some sort of a, a clear idea of this, if this was going to be. Successful or not, nevertheless, it felt important to make. But I think that everybody had was very relieved, you know, when it showed that actually audiences uh, were responding to it and uh, right, right. wanted to see it.
0: But I'd like to to go back because I'd like to know a little bit about the first conversation you had with Chris Nolan, who you worked with on Interstellar. I've um, about Dunkirk. What was this conversation like? What was Nolan's vision that he told you about?
1: You know, you know the funny thing is I read the script for the first time um, in Sweden when um, Chris and his family, they came to the, to Stockholm, actually. Mm-hmm. When Chris finishes his script, he he literally he prints one hard copy, and that's the hard copy that exists, and that is what travels with him. And that's what people get to read. But I went to to the hotel and and sat in the room for, A couple of hours because it's not a very long script and um, and he he hadn't told me before uh, you know what it was what it was about if it was period or not period so so I really just started reading uh, without knowing any any anything prior to that it was very short script it was like 80 pages which is a lot shorter than most, or say, all scripts that I've I've read. Right,
0: especially today. Yeah,
1: so it was a very very compact read, and and a very quick read, and a very sort of intense read. And um, he came back after two hours and asked me what I thought about it, and and I loved it. It was it was it was so compact. It was so um, dense, you know. Yet on in the script on the pages already, the scale was very much reflected and of course you know the first thoughts are how how are we gonna do this you know how are we gonna approach this again you know the same as the same kind of reaction i had with interstellar it's like you read it and 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 it's so full of imagery and and ideas literally when you finish the script you have no fucking clue how to how to solve all these puzzles and how to how to solve it so reading a script from Chris is very intimidating, but he's always very sort of calm and uh, has already given a lot of things, a lot of thoughts.
0: Yeah, I've, I've read about this about Chris, including from your first AC assistant camera, Bob Hall, that Nolan is like a movie wonder kid, a filmmaking savant. He knows intuitively what he wants to do, and he even owns his own IMAX lens, for example have the two of you found each other in this way
1: yeah i mean chris what what i love about chris he's he's like a renaissance figure you know he's he has knowledge about you know every aspect in filmmaking he's he's nobody that that feels intimidated by either one of the aspects and he has just this hunger and this curiosity that makes him figure out every single aspect and and at some point you you realize that he knows more about you know, just about everything uh, uh, you know, both technically, but also philosophically, narratively. So he's he's very challenging in that way. He will know the lenses better. He will know the cameras better. He will know the the whole post technology around uh, around the film. He he knows it as no no one else. So, Chris is overall knowledge of things is extremely challenging you always want to live up to uh, the stuff that he comes up with and you always want to want to come up with better ideas which doesn't mean that you always come up with better ideas but but you have constantly this sort of wheel ambition. going on such grinding and this ambition uh, in order to come up with better stuff and 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 i always have a feeling that when i work with him that you know i become a better cinematographer you know because of that reason
0: the genre of the war film is kind of a, what can I say, a rite of passage for the biggest directors from Coppola to Malik to Eastwood and Bigelow. Were you guys inspired by any other of the films in the genre visually?
1: I, I think for Chris it was very important to find find his own sort of way into this war, his very sort of own specific way of describing the event or the war you know and also narratively he was interested in telling different things i think that chris was very he was very meticulous from 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 the start on that he didn't want this to turn out you know to be very sentimental or to be told from a very sort of personal uh, point of view for instance by people that have a huge backstory mm-hmm. you know uh, sort of a war mirrored in per- personal trauma or drama but he wanted to to scale it up a lot, and he wanted much more to sort of approach this event as a, a scaled up version of Relentless Threat. He didn't want you to sort of understand or be 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 with a character in a very sort of backstory theatrical way, right. you know. Um, but he he just wanted you as a viewer to be put on that beach without having any prior knowledge and being subject to the relentless stress and, and what it does to you as a human being from that moment on. And and so, so the characters, they have very little backstory, you know, very little uh, of them. And the only thing that really binds them together is that sort of common experience of that event. And I think that was very important for Chris to sort of Uh, yeah be a little bit more pure raw and naked about that approach and and try to steer away from theatrics and sentimentality that you very often see used as a sort of a vehicle in storytelling
0: and one of the things that you really you you hit on there that is incredible for us the viewer is that intensity and that sort of pressure you feel like you're sweating the whole time um it's so raw and intense how did you visually capture that
1: with the visual storytelling of this it it, it has a very similar approach it's like you know we we didn't want to be sentimental or we also want to steer away from the theatrics of of storytelling you know in in film you know you, you the way you choose your shots the way you light it you know the way you frame it you know, you can, you can go pretty pretty extreme and you can, in sort of a theoretical way, you can sort of come forward to a certain look or to a certain feel, but I think that for us it was very important to sort of first get the philosophy right. For us, uh, the film wanted to feel sort of observed and relentless.
0: Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of handheld work and, and, and I understand that you are your own camera operator um, very much, which is particularly interesting when you're filming about Correct me if I'm wrong. Seventy percent of this film in large format because that's not an easy camera to handle, handheld. Correct? No, I mean
1: there's a lot of talk about it, but to be honest, I don't really necessarily see the fuss about 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 it. It's uh, uh, the camera is bigger and it's heavy, but you know.
0: Well, how heavy is it?
1: Well, it's it's a 60 pound camera, but you know the magazines. They you know the, the the 70 millimeter film, and when you shoot on IMAX, it's 15 perf. So on a magazine that is thousand foot film, you effectively only shoot for two minutes. So you you will not have that camera any longer, a maximum any longer on your shoulder than those two minutes. So it's short bursts. And then I have people around me, you know, like my um, uh, key grip and dolly grip, who would sort of wrestle himself around me and and support that camera. You know, it's uh, it's um, uh, you know on boats we would you know get ourselves in a position, and he would he would hold the camera, and then as soon as we made the shot, he would carry it on my shoulder, and then he would strangle his arms through my arms and 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 help me support the camera.
0: But still that's pretty impressive. Yeah, but
1: well, he he actually said on a, in an interview with the American Cinematographer magazine the interviewer asked him so how can I imagine that what what is that like and he said well imagine two uh, men in their mid 40s playing twister uh, while juggling around with an old sewing machine <laughs> that's a little bit what it is.
0: Uh, because, I mean, you're in incredibly tight places with this huge camera, too. I mean, this is aerial, this is underwater, this is in small boats. I mean, there's huge beach scenes also as well. But but that's what I think it's hard to understand, to sort of see how you guys manage that. But now with the twister analogy, I kind of get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's and it's not comfortable. This whole sort of filmmaking is, is, is far from comfortable, but uh, nobody has ever... Said that needs to be comfortable you know it's 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 very funny because it's it's the trend is so much that people try to make cameras smaller and very often compromise picture quality just to have a camera that is easy to move around and comfortable but I, I always think it's kind of counterintuitive to to what my profession is about which is I always think oh I have to choose the best possible Way of of registering what's happening in front of the camera, and then there's a lot of technical issues that I have to overcome in order to make that possible.
0: I also understand that it's very very noisy. Why is that? Yeah, and
1: and that's and that's the the, the very reason that seventy uh, percent of the film is shot in IMAX, and thirty uh, percent is shot in seventy millimeter five perf, which is the you know more old fashioned feature camera seventy millimeter as we know it is is used in Ryan's daughter or Lawrence of Arabia but that's a camera that is quiet so so there's some scenes that that really required uh, sync sound we we had to shoot on the 70 millimeter but everywhere where we could get away with post-sync or adr or wide shots or scenes that don't have so much dialogue or so that there are dialogues from behind masks and so on
0: because that must be quite a challenge for actors to have that noise, and 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 I read it was funny to read that that on Interstellar where you also did a lot, and that was less of a problem because all the actors were wearing spacesuits and helmets, so they didn't have the sound <laughs> of the camera. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, they're they're all the time acting in a fishbowl, you know, so so they don't hear the outside sound, which is that rattling camera.
0: So Tom Hardy, he could, he always has something in front of his mouth. He he could have the. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, but, Tom Hardy, strangely enough, he only needs a left eye to uh, to communicate he whatever must. he wants to <laughs> communicate.
0: <laughs> it's funny, though, because the, the incredible work you're doing in this modern filmmaking state of the art, but when... A me as a layman reads about it, and you describe it. It's kind of like we're going back in film history. Very heavy. You can only film for two minutes, and the sound is really loud. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but but that has very much to do with that discussion of uh, confusing uh, being practical with uh, quality, and it has been a a, a a big discussion for a long time. You know, it's in filmmaking, but it's also in distribution, like. It's much more practical to move hard disks in between cinemas and then project it in a relatively low resolution. Very handy and it's very easy, but it's not necessarily better. It's, it's, it's uh, in fact, it's far worse. You know, we, 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 we as a cinema audience, we're settling on a picture quality in the cinema that is effectively the same quality as we can see on our televisions at home you know and we do that kind of in the name of progress but i personally i don't believe in that i feel it's much more about not accepting uh, declining quality for a comfort's purpose you know I,
0: I i saw a graph um correct me if i if i'm saying it wrong where you could see the different aspect ratios of dunkirk where i as a viewer could go see it in different movie theaters the imax version the 70 mil, was like six or seven different in, in this graph um when you were framing were you framing for every possibility for me to see the movie or were you framing for for one do you know what i mean well you know
1: as as much of a uh fanatic imax lovers chris and i are um you know the imax prints are limited but they're the most pristine and the most beautiful as a film lover it's very hard not to just solely keep that aspect ratio in mind but of course, you have in your fuel finder, you have some sort of safeguard, and you have some sort of a guidance. So, so you make sure that uh, you know for a two four zero version, you know, like a cinema scope version, uh, it's 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 decent as well. And then the, the 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 seventy millimeter five per version is again a little bit bigger. So we we mostly kept the IMAX and the seventy mil five per version five per version in our in our minds. And both versions they look they look great. The five per version you could say is a more sort of conventional cinema experience you you get a little bit more aware of framing and so on whereas the the IMAX is a very sort of immersive and visceral experience right.
0: Let's talk about what is your most difficult scene for you personally um, in the movie.
1: Well, it's very funny, every element there, like uh, land, uh, sea, uh, air, it had its own whole different, very specific uh, set of unique challenges, you know.
0: Tell me some of those.
1: The the air for instance, we, we were very serious about, you know, getting cameras up there in the air, getting IMAX cameras on airplanes and in airplanes. You know, I hope that when you see the film you think for obvious reasons, but there's certain things that we thought were just, just unachievable by CGI or, or un, unachievable with the same kind of level of credibility that, that we tried to achieve. But, you know, it required basically that we that we had to engineer lenses and engineer camera rigs and camera mounts, and we had to work with aeronautic engineers in order to make all that stuff work. And then we did a lot of aerials, and then Chris and I were up in either helicopters or airplanes chasing uh, Spitfires and, and 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 Messerschmitts, and uh, and of course this was challenging. And and you know again, there's two two minutes of a of, of IMAX film on a magazine. After those two minutes of filming in the air, a dogfight, both Chris and I would be would be green. <laughs> <laughs> And we're very happy to land the plane and reload the camera and go up again. Uh, but, it, but, you know, all these kind of, kind of things, they were very challenging, yet they were also extremely exciting, extremely much fun. You know, one of our, our sort of first scouts or first research trip was when I was doing post on Spectre. Chris said, oh, you know what? We have to go to, um, to fly a Spitfire so from my um you know i was sitting in the di suite uh you know and i i traveled the next day i traveled to an old uh, world war ii uh, army base and um, one by one we we got to fly in the spitfire which was fantastic it was it's a training spitfire with with two seats and um, and we got to sit in the front of a spitfire and actually feel the, the g4s and the you know, these kind of things are, of course, fantastic for a, a little kid, like <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but but then, then, you know, the water, it has other challenges. It has waves. It has small, you know, we, we're jam-packed in this very claustrophobic um, space. You have weather. You have, you know, the, the marine unit was, was excessive. It was huge. And, and, and all these kind of things, they had to be coordinated, you know, like, explosions on water capsizing ships crashing airplanes and all that stuff had to be coordinated while while bobbing around on waves or in the wind or you know some days the the, the weather was too bad to go out or we could just go out a little bit and um, you know it, it, the sea the sea and the boats it was quite rough you know with boat to boat transfers and so so that had its own set of challenges, both, you know...
0: How long was the production time?
1: Uh, you know, I think we shot around 80 days, all in mm-hmm.
0: total.
1: It's not much, and uh, we tried to keep... The, the pace of shooting was also relentless. It was just, you know, the moment the sun peaked over the horizon, we, we, our, our cameras were already rolling, and the whole coordination, the marine coordination, air coordination, was, was fantastic. It was impeccable, and everything sort of worked it out which is also part of Chris's mastermind because he's also productionally he's an extremely smart uh, and pragmatic person you know he knows exactly what what he needs how he needs it and, and, and when and where and how to get there so um,
0: tell me a little bit about those the beach scenes with the incredible amount of actors and extras and and, and were you working with how are you working with light and tide and things like that?
1: Uh, Chris and I, we we were not too concerned about continuity because you know, and and light directions, we were not concerned about making this pretty in a you know in a theatrical sense. You know, we 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 would shoot in front light, we would shoot in backlight, we would shoot in the beginning of the production. I tried, you know, I I thought I had to try to to light it a little bit, you know, or I had to try to sort of influence or push it a little bit. But this is a very a very vain and ridiculous thought because you know the moment you do something like that on a, on a white beach like that it's like pissing in the wind you know it's <laughs> so it, 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 it it just doesn't work like that and and also with the relentless pace of the production we just felt we have to be there and we have to do it on the spot and you know and 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 find it somehow you know you know, so we were we were we were very little precious about those kind of things. We were very little precious about weather or weather changes. Or, of course, we were flexible with the production because we had the beach, we had the mall. And uh, after one storm, you know, the 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 mall or parts of the mall were washed away by the waves. And mm-hmm. and then we would decide, okay, this morning we're not going to shoot on the mall. We're going to shoot a, a scene on the beach over there. Or you know, one morning. Uh, the whole sort of vista of the beach was changed by weird white sea foam and and of course you know looking at that we realized this is incredible we have to sort of corporate incorporate that and, and use that so so we were, we were very responsive, and you could say, you know, I mean, even though it sounds a little bit boring nowadays, but, you know, definitely there's a sort of a documentary uh, nerf to, to everything, you know, in terms of its responsiveness and in terms of its planning.
0: But what's that like for the actors to work um, in, in these circumstances that seem very, very interchangeable and difficult and so many?
1: The actors are literally just thrown in a deep every day again, you know, so they really have to be troopers. And I remember, you know, like, uh, well did some f- scenes with Finn, but like Henny, uh, uh, Harry and an iron, you know, it, when they came to the set the first week or the first two weeks, it was just ridiculous. You would get out of your trailer and it was, you know, the, 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 the trailers were just bobbing around by the storm. And I think initially they would come out of trailers as, Oh, we're not going to shoot today, but. Of course, we were shooting that day, and of course, you know it was it was ridiculous because for Harry it was his first time ever in a film, and he was literally sitting like eight hours in a in a totally soaked suit in on the beach in the storm in a puddle of water. So, so and 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 thank God he um, he hadn't been on too many film sets because I don't know if he would have otherwise accepted it. But for somehow they were all they are all troopers, and they they really not they didn't complain and, and 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 at the same time you are know, doing a doing a thing like this uh, you know based on 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 those real events i think it's just very silly to start complaining at any moment but
0: uh, <laughs> no i mean that's true method acting right there <laughs> with no choice yeah, and, it, and,
1: it, and it was not necessarily something that was sort of generated on purpose you know it was not like now the, the 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 circumstances are terrible. Let's go out and shoot and get the real feeling. But it was it was you know we were just super functional about it. It's like if the cameras are still able to roll, we roll. You know we 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 we're not gonna sit around in uh, you know <laughs> at the catering and wait until the the weather gets more comfortable. You know I uh, okay. I remember when we when we did Interstellar, you know, we were shooting on this glacier in Iceland and it was just so, it was literally, it was like a, you know, like a hurricane going on over the ice glacier and there was just nothing to shoot anymore. We had, we had shot some inserts on a parking lot. I mean, just to keep on shooting, always to keep on shooting. And I remember that Chris and I were just sort of nervously watching the clock tick by and every sort of 15 minutes we would or or 20 minutes we would drive up to the glacier to check out if it was if we could if the wind went down a little bit and i remember chris and i were standing in the, in the glacier next to each other and we were literally standing in an angle of 45 degrees in the wind you know with our wind blow back just looking at each other like nah not yet okay <laughs> But as soon as it was possible, then all the circus came out again. And, and it was very similar in, um, in in Dunkirk. It was just, you know, if you can shoot, then you just shoot, shoot. And you should not be too precious about, you know, sun directions or, you know, or the fact that, you know, the uh, sea water is in your pants and sand is between your teeth and all that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> if we go back to that first, when the first conversation you had with Chris about the movie where you were like, Oh my God, how are we going to do this? What What is something that you solved um, with your guys' own invention or idea um, that you, reading the script, were like, this is never going to happen?
1: Well, you know, the, the things that are always difficult is, is water is going in the water, but also, you know, the, the idea that you want to be in the water and then uh, submerge underwater. So you're like an amphibian. But there's a lot of ships sinking, like big. Uh, you know, you're inside ships that are sinking, so it's very claustrophobic, and and there's you know the water is 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 is, is, is levels are rising inside in a blink of, in blink of an eye, and all these kind of things are technically very challenging, of course. So you you know you have to build you know we have to build gimbals for that that could do it. It's like huge sets that are on hydraulic arms that would pull sets underwater and and then we'd be in there we would be half scuba divers and half just land filmers um at the same time you know so there's always you're always up until your neck into water or or, or submerged underwater it's it's those kind of things they're hard to overcome you know salt sea water you know you know as a filmmaker is like the the, the biggest enemy on um, on a camera, for instance, it's salt seawater combined with, with 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 very fine sand, which just mm-hmm. sticks to everything. And these cameras, they're mechanical cameras, so if if, if they get dirty, they, they they stop working.
0: So what did you do?
1: Well, we 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 built like like there's this company called Hydroflex. Mm-hmm. They built like underwater houses to cameras. Mm-hmm. So, so we, 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 um, engineered a sort of very new amphibian water housing for our IMAX cameras, Mm um, uh, which, um, yeah, which were very smartly engineered. I think, you know, they, you know, because you have a lot of things to take in consideration with your IMAX cameras, which one of them is the reload time. You know, every time when you shoot two minutes, you have to reload and originally IMAX said in their original specs, and that's how it used to be before Chris <laughs> took to the IMAX. It was twenty minutes reload, but you cannot fit that in filmmaking. So our technical crew has brought that down, like athletes, to like just three minute reloads or 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 five minute reloads, which already makes it much more workable. But then when you and put this your is camera underwater, in some, well, yeah, or but you water. know. You have, Get your get your camera up to the surface and then reload and then go underwater again. But but that that's a lot of technical th- things around that you have to sort of uh, sort of overcome or, or or the planes itself as well. You know, it's you know, you have all these dogfighting sequences and, and, and you have an, an aversion against green screen, uh, you know, or or you just feel you don't want to rely on, on, on computers to do that. I mean, then just start figuring it out, you know. <laughs>
0: The amount of work that goes into planning every detail for you and your team in, in location—how can we do this underwater? How can we do? This? How much what prep time do you have for your group of people?
1: Well, I have a little bit longer than most of my people. I, you know, I think you know the moment that uh, I read the script, kind of my prep starts. Maybe not everything paid, but you know, it's it's like that. You you read a script and you in know your that you're bit and it's in your head you're 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 full ahead and you start making phone calls to you know the people that are potentially gonna build your lenses or you know that're gonna engineer your cameras and so on and so on and you start talking to your crew as well but uh, then I think I had like 12 weeks prep you know <laughs> like 12 weeks you know where I would go to the office and you know we would meet and discuss and, and that's that and 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 we would scout you know we would scout a lot
0: that's not a lot because what you're talking about is to use an old uh fabrics that you're really the inventing the wheel here in in many in many ways um that, which maybe took decades to do another movie history
1: <laughs> well we, we, we we're not inventing the wheel but we are definitely trying to improve the wheel that's the difference i mean the cameras exist and they exist in in the state that they exist, and you want to utilize them. but in order to utilize them, you have to adapt. You know you have to invent different different stuff in order to 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 make different things work for very specific situations, you know Like if you want to mount a, a camera to the wing of an airplane, you have to get an aeronautic de- uh, engineer. To build a rig that is, you know, uh, uh, streamlined for air, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that is strong enough uh, to hold the weight, and um, you know, the drag of the air, you know, cannot influence too much the plane, so that you cannot fly it anymore, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But those kind of things, you know, you can sort of engineer yourself forward and, uh, and do that, and. Another thing we did with the production—the production bought a plane, bought a Russian plane, uh, a Yak, which we sort of used as a camera ship, and which we sometimes mocked up like a Spitfire, like you have looks to the tail or to the nose, you know, those kind of things. So, 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 so we started building these kind of things, and and also Panavision, you know, I've been working with Dan Sasaki before. I mean, they're they're lens manufacturers. They're incredible. They. Um, and, and they already know, you know, them from the moment uh, that I'm giving them a phone call, like, "Uh oh, we got to get our get our shit together and start start grinding some new lenses." <laughs> yeah,
0: I understand. Right. You're not Swedish per se, but but you made some very very p- powerful movies here, and, and Sweden has kind of claimed you. <laughs> um, yeah, f- for I, it's m- a-
1: most most rightfully because you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I made my most important steps in my career. I started making in Sweden. Plus, you know, my wife is Swedish and my daughter is Swedish, and we uh, have a lovely house in Sweden. So, you know, the, the the strongest relationship to a country that I have, you could say, is is is, is Sweden. Hmm. Of course, I come originally from Holland, but but you know, I mean, Sweden is the country I want to want to grow old in. Perhaps you know.
0: Well, besides the sort of obvious budgetary differences that that you have in in Hollywood and such, um, in terms of of filmmaking over here, have you brought things with you that that you did here, um, or and what are the there big differences?
1: Well, you know, effectively, Christina, is, is that the way you know, sort of artistically, maybe, if you will. Um, I don't I don't feel such a big difference you know the, the the projects that I got involved with in Sweden or the project that I got involved with here I I kind of can do them with the same mentality I've never really worried or never have, I have tried never to be intimidated by budget and just sort of do my thing you know trying to do the best that I could in specific situations no matter how big or how small the budget was and that, and still sometimes you know in Sweden you have to do it 16 hours (laughs) working day uh whereas here here you 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 have a lot more time sometimes for things and 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 uh, you know you 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 can you know generate a lot of tools. to make You have to
0: admit it's kind of nice to pick up the phone to Dan Sasaki and say look this lens (laughs) I need a little adjustment and just get them
1: it's totally wonderful and i'm i'm extremely privileged and i take a lot of advantage of that but yet at the same time i mean you know in sweden i was also trying to invent as much as possible as i could you know it was on a different it was maybe on a different level or maybe but you always have sort of the limitations in the back of your head and you work from without w- within those limitations and um, and it's all about being inventive um, and i think you know it's there's a big danger in sort of the bigger picture to to lose part of that inventiveness but but i somehow i think i managed to sort of turn that around and 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 find channels to you know um feed on that inventiveness you know it's it's a very big part in my kind of in my kind of working and especially with chris i i just love coming up with things all the time i would love I'd i'd love building i'd love coming across a problem and going to a rental company and and here no we don't have anything for that and it's not possible and then sort of trying to figure out ways to actually do it you know and mm-hmm. and people around around me you know and the further i get in my career they the more exciting excited they are to sort of cater for me as well right
0: right so i
1: just notice it that that right now you know i i'm kind of getting little known as the the guy that wants to invent stuff and invent shit and build things i mean my crew that i have with me now since since there's a whole bunch of films my key grip herb my gaffer adam you know or my focus puller, you know bob hall on um on um, uh, Dunkirk. They're, they're coming to me uh, from time to time, says, "Oh, I got this. I, um, we 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 build this now for you. You want to try this out?" So everybody's sort of in in and in on it with me, and and um, everybody is building, everybody is inventing, and everybody is trying to come up with you know better ideas than I come up with as I'm trying to come up with better ideas that that, that Chris is coming up with. It's 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 a very exciting and it's a very sort of um, uplifting uh, way of uh, filmmaking. I think.
0: Yeah, it sounds incredibly inspiring <laughs> to be able to do your own, you know, thing like that. But um, after sort of Sweden or after T- Thomas Alfredson or Tinker Tailor and things like that, your Hollywood ride sort of began and you worked with these incredibly innovative, but also, at least according to legend, pretty difficult and precise directors from, from David O. Russell to Spike Jones and, and Chris. You know, Can you talk a little bit about the different methods they use on sets or
1: how they are so all the directors they have very di- different methodologies and 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 very different hang-ups and very different sort of ideas about how they see filmmaking or what they want to achieve with the film and i think you know as a as a dp you know it's kind of your job to to be able to tap into that and to be able to adapt to that a little bit you know and, and within that sort of let your own, you know, idea about things seep through or, you know, you you, you always take your own personality to your to your projects. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I can I can I can kind of only say, you know, they're all very different. I, I, I also don't think that that any of them is particularly difficult. I think, you know, they're all very serious about what they're doing in their own in their own sort of rights and in their own sort of ideas they, they 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 all want to achieve something very specific and they all you know uh, choose a set of tools in order to achieve that and 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 i'm i'm just trying to tap into that you know
0: because it with, with david or us for example on the fighter that was also sort of a genre that um with the boxing um that we as viewers are are kind of used to is the wrong word. but but we've seen in 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 big movies, we have sort of a visual connection to to that. what What did he sort of ask of you?
1: Well, uh, uh, it's a long time ago, but uh, of course, it was very intimidating because there's a, a great boxing movie that everybody has knows very well, and that's kind of a classic, which is, of course, raging bull. But i I remember that also the period in Lowell, you know, the crack and everything, uh, you know, a very, it, you know, he was much more after some sort of a realism there, and mm-hmm. um, one of what I, I just remember that one of the most um, comforting thoughts was when when I I came up with the idea of oh we should shoot all the uh, the uh, boxing sequences uh, with the HBO people and shoot them on crappy old Beta cam cameras, Beta SP cameras as they were done done before. Which was a big relief because then suddenly there was all these boxing matches in which, you know, I didn't have to come up with weird slow motion things or, or interesting sort of artistic impressions. But, but we sweat is dripping sort of, in
0: different directions. And
1: we, you know, we, we, we kind of found, found a key to it that was not really done before, yet didn't require from us, you know, that sort of different level of interpreting a boxing match we were we were we were going to do the boxing matches for real you know shoot them like 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 television cameras and blow them up over the screen and you know and and in the hope of course that they would get their own sort of visceral feel and also the fact that that you know it was very important that they then became very recognizable as as for the audience as you know, as because they had been watching so many of those boxing boxing matches on HBO television,
0: and and with Spike, with I'm thinking of her, um, the movie her. Uh, there, you were going for something a sort of different type of realism. Even though if it was realistic, there was another sort of feel to it? What did he, what did he explain to you that he wanted?
1: Well, with Spike, I mean, Spike is, you know, he's, 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 he's a, he's a romantic, you know, and, 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 um, he is, you know, her is, 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 is kind of, for me, it's very much away from, yeah, from some sort of a recognizable reality. It's much more sort of a romantic vision of a, you know, a, a future, you know, you, you, you know, we had to, we had to sort of invent that world where the- Theodore lives in. We had to sort of build it from scratch yet, of course, the world wanted to be recognizable. We wanted to, you know, recognize things from our reality through it, you know, some things enhanced, uh, some things we wanted to remove from, from, from our world, basically sort of create, create our own little bubble of the future. And Spike's film, um, um, well, Spike's film was 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 a challenge, of course, because we we're shooting uh, one person, you know, getting a love relationship with a device or with an operating system, which is which is a very big challenge, you know. So we were very much sort of very meticulous about. You know the world around theater, how that felt, how how he would move through that bubble. For instance, that was very, a you know, very difficult puzzle. I remember.
0: Is there anyone um, that you would love to work with that you haven't already?
1: Difficult question. I I think you know people that I do respect. You know they have their own thing going on that 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 I I really love. You know,
0: for example,
1: I've I've always been a big fan of uh, PTA, for instance. But at the same time, you know. He's now he's shooting now his own films and I think it's wonderful you know it's like that's, he's that's, actually
0: his own DP I read on the next yeah year.
1: I I think that he had always such a good thing going on with with most of his cinematographers you know it's it, it's that you know that idea is like in order to do good work you also have to find your sort of place within within the constellation and 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 I don't know I you know, I have a lot of people that I respect a lot, but I just, I just don't see myself in sort of in, in, in their constellation. And that's not because of, you know, something negative. It's actually because of something positive as well. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's very often, it's about chemistry. You know, it's, uh, you know, I meet, you know, I get to meet a lot of directors, et cetera, et cetera. And. I just, at some point in my career, I realized, you know, when you sit with somebody in a room and you start talking about the film, you very quickly sort of get a, get a grasp on, the, the, you know, where you can go with it, uh, with a certain director, what you can make of it, what, you know, and you also feel very quickly, you know, on a chemistry level, if things would stagnate and if things wouldn't sort of flow. And, and so that specific wish to work with a director because of, you know, stuff that I've seen and that I like, it's not so significant anymore. Because I think once you meet with a director, that's the moment that you actually really know if you want to do it or not.
0: Is that the same with genre? Do you, any genre that would you, if, as long as the project is interesting?
1: Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm totally genre... Unprejudiced. I, I, I I don't mind you know I can do I can I think I can you know I can find a challenge in whatever genre but but it has to be with the right director and 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 it has to be with the with the right script I think for me it starts all with 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 your contact with the director and the idea of what you want to do with a certain film you know but it's not like oh I would like uh, I would like to do a Western or I'd like to do in a way I would never do another science fiction film, you know, after <laughs> Interstellar, but then you, then you meet, then you meet a director, James Gray, and, and, and we meet and we talk and, and I love him and, and, and I love his ideas about it. And I just get to feeling, okay, Oh, we can, we can come up with interesting stuff together. It would, it it interests me, and 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 that's a little bit how it works for me. So,
0: have you already started inventing for that one?
1: Oh yeah, new new stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you can tell us? <laughs> uh,
1: I can tell you in um uh you know next year, I think.
0: <laughs> okay. Well then I'll call you again then uh, you. But I have I've have one last one question asking for a friend. What would is was it like to film Harry Styles in large format? Were you totally overwhelmed?
1: No. I mean, you know,
0: <laughs> I'm just joking with you.
1: <laughs> the only the only problem that that it gave us was that it was always very difficult to get into our hotel because there was always a lot of girls waiting in front of <laughs> the hotel. But you know, he himself—he was like you know the most uh, genuine, uh, hardworking guy, and just one of one of the whole crew. And he would never leave the set, and he would always grab like two flight cases with lenses and help people carrying stuff out and so on. So you know, and in general, on on on, on one of Chris's sets, there's very little of that sort of you know precious star uh treatments you know usually all his actors they're around on the set they don't they don't go to their trailers and they they're always available and they always want to do the best they can and 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 they always want to you know push themselves as much to the limit as as chris does you know chris is always the first one to you know, stand on a ship that is going down underwater or on a, on a wreck, uh, you know, or in a plane, you know, he's always the first, and he, he will never, he'll never let actors do things that he wouldn't have, uh, you know, that he wouldn't dare doing himself or wouldn't have tested himself. So he's always the first there's uh, a huge, always a huge safety concern. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that radiates very much on, on the actors. So, So, yeah, to answer your question, I mean, Harry Styles is really like all the other guys.
0: Thank you so much for your time and and for making a movie of such real import. that was really an important movie that that, um, I'm so happy that it's going so well. Thanks, Christina. Take care. Thank you so much to Hoyte van Hoytema. Dunkirk is in theaters now. And go back and watch Hoyte's other movies now that you've heard him talk about his methods. It's really fascinating to see his incredible attention to detail and beauty. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Hope you'll join us this new coming season. You will find us on popcultureconfidential.com, on Twitter, at PodPopCulture. And please take a few minutes to rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud. That would really help us out. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestadt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening.